Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We love you and we trust in you alone. Uh, Only you, by the power of your spirit, can do this work this morning. So we trust in your spirit to teach. We trust in your spirit to not only teach through me, but to transform our hearts and minds into righteousness, into Christ-likeness. And so we depend on you, and your word tells us when we uh, commit our ways to you and trust in you, you will act. It tells that in Psalm 37. So we are trusting in you and asking that you act in a magnificent way uh, that reconditions our hearts and minds to be that of Christ's. And so do your work here, Lord, this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to take a journey through the Old Testament to see what God does with Israel and Judah as they struggle to obey him and the warnings he gives them if they don't obey his law and what happens when they don't obey him. And we also will see what that means to us today. So in Deuteronomy 29, give you kind of a, a little background here, a little bit what's going on. In Deuteronomy 29, Israel is in the midst of their historical journey through the wilderness of 40 years, and they have finally arrived at Moab, which in Moab is an area of land which is on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea is the body of water that is south of the Jordan River. Uh, the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea. And uh, the Jordan River is the river that Israel will cross over to enter the promised land. And that very text in Joshua, as Israel enters the promised land, that text itself has its own gospel magnification, just as this text today has a gospel magnification. And so they'll cross the Jordan to enter the promised land. But right now, they're south of the Jordan uh, on the eastern side of the Dead Sea in the land of Moab. So they're, cro- they're close to crossing the Jordan and experiencing God's fulfillment of his promise to give them land. He told Abraham he'd give them land, and now he's finally about to give them land, and they're so close. And they will cross the Jordan under Joshua's leadership soon enough. But first, Moses is commanded by God to gather the people in Moab and speak to them concerning his covenant to renew the covenant he made with them previously. So... Moses obeys God, he gathers the people in Moab, and he speaks to them in Deuteronomy 29, verses 1 through 15. And in those verses, it's all very positive. It's just God reminding the people all the things he's done for them. He he reminds them that over the 40 years that they wandered through the desert, he reminds them, I brought you out of Egypt. I took you from slavery. I freed you. Through miracles, and if we were to recount how God had preserved Israel in just the Egyptian uh, escape out of slavery, that itself would be its own uh, dissertation on the magnificent grace of God to save his people. Which, and again, even there are beautiful and tremendous gospel implications and pictures of the gospel itself. And the entire gospel itself is revealed in how God frees his people from Egypt. And so Moses reminds the people of that, and he reminds the people that for 40 years as they wandered the desert, their clothes have not worn out. Their sandals have not worn out. And God has provided all that they need, meaning he has led them faithfully as an expression of his love for his people per his covenant with them. 
And Moses says that God is establishing them as his people to renew his covenant with them. But then, so so far, all good. Very positive. God's reminder. I've been so good to you. Remember that I've done this for you. And, And essentially, it's God's way of saying, don't forget me, your God, who is your savior and your rescuer and the lover of your soul. And I made a covenant with you. You are my children. You are my chosen nation. I love you deeply. Follow me faithfully. I have given you nothing but all the right reasons and so many of those and so many reasons to stay faithful to me, to love me. That is God's repeated declaration to the people of Israel. And every time Israel sins in the Old Testament, God is like, stop forgetting about me. You are supposed to love me. Now just think about what that means from God's perspective. God is the only one who fully knows himself. We see that as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that the spirit of God knows the depths of God and God himself knows himself so well, so perfectly And he therefore understands, because God knows all things. And in God knowing all things, he knows himself perfectly. And he knows, therefore, in, in knowing himself perfectly, knows the magnitude of the glory that should be given to him. The magnitude of the expression of his holiness that we should give back to him. Essentially, because God knows all things and he knows humanity, he knows the best thing for you is to worship him. The best thing for you is to love him. It's just like you with your children. If my child says to me, Dad, I think the best thing, my t- let's say my 10 or my 11-year-old says to me, Dad, the best thing for me is to go out on my own. I'm going to say, no, it's not. Dad, I think the best thing for me is to get a different dad. No, it's not. And child, you are not wise enough or smart enough or experienced enough or good enough To go out on your own or to get a new dad. You need me and I'm your father and I have more wisdom than you. And I know myself better than you know me. And I know you better than you know you. And I know that the best thing for you is me. So you're going to stay in this house and I'm going to love you exponentially, wonderfully, and greatly for as long as I live. I will love you with all my heart and all my soul and all my life. And I expect from you a return of that love because I know, child, that the best thing for you is to love me also. And you will show me that love through what? Obedience. So to say that God, it's ridiculous for God to Demand that his people love him and demand that, he, that we worship him. And I've heard people say, you know, God forgot to demand such a thing. As just, he's just a megalomaniac. He's just, he's just arrogant and selfish to demand that we love him and worship him. What, what makes him think that we should worship him? Because he's worthy. Because he's worth it. Because it's the best thing for us. So God doesn't demand it because he's insecure. And it's like, oh, oh you should worship me. He's like, I'm the best thing for you. Worship me. Love me. If you love me, I will bless you. And I love you. And I do bless you. And I bless you so that you can see my love for you, so that you would return love to me. And in loving me back, we, you would be obedient and we would have a wonderful relationship. That's kind of God's message to Israel over and over again. And yet they continue to sin. So, despite all the positivity of Deuteronomy 29, 1 through 15, we get to verse 16. And God gives them a warning. Now, the warning is primarily about idolatry, and that's always going to be the case in the Old Testament. And it's still the case today for us, that God warns against idolatry to his people constantly. And the reason is because of everything I just said. 
There are no other gods that exist. So to go worship another god would be false worship of a false god that doesn't exist. It is a waste of your time. It will produce nothing good. It will only lead to sin. It itself is sin, and it dishonors God who is worthy of all worship. And so for us to give it to someone else would be ridiculous. Now, that would be like my son. Instead of saying, Dad, I want to go live with a different dad, would be like, Dad, I want to go worship uh, a non-existent being and live in the wilderness by myself. I say, well, that's even more dangerous. At least if you go to a different dad, there's someone who's going to take care of you. If you go worship a false dad that doesn't even exist, there's nothing to protect you from the enemy. You're like lost in the wilderness. And so God's warning is always a warning against idolatry. That's his biggest problem with Israel is they are constantly worshiping false gods. They're surrounded by foreign nations. Uh, and, and being surrounded by foreign nations, the people pick up practices from those foreign nations and they practice those, the Israelites practice those foreign forms of worship and they adhere to other nations. It's a constant sinful uh, thing that Israel does on repeat over and over again. And so God warns against idolatry. And we'll see this warning here in verses 16 through 17. Moses says, You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed and you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone of silver and gold, which were among them. So he establishes the condition of other nations who worship false gods and Moses brings this to their attention, informing them that uh, they are aware of how detestable their false worship and idolatry is to the Lord, essentially saying that Israel also ought to think that those other nations' worship of idols is detestable. Israel, you've seen other nations worship false gods. Don't go after that. Then in verse 18, he warns them against being like those other nations who falsely worship idols. And he says, beware. So now we know with that word beware, we got a warning. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord, our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root-bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. So the warning is solidified. And now Israel knows that they have been warned to avoid idolatry, to stay faithful to the covenant that they have with the Lord, which requires their obedience to God's law. And again, this is not a matter of God saying, I have a law, you have to follow it. God is not legalistic in the new covenant in Christ. He does not demand obedience as, as a means to gain his favor. And he also doesn't demand obedience in the Old Testament as a means to gain his favor. What he demands in the Old Testament is love. And the product of love will be obedience and worship. Moses goes on in verse 19 describing the one who would rebel against God's covenant and pursue false gods. So this is him talking about the one who doesn't heed this warning and continues in idolatry and false worship. And he says... In verse 19, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, listen to what this person does. This is a sinner who has rebelled against God and worshiped false gods and has turned to idolatry. This is what that person says. He blesses himself in his heart. He blesses himself in his heart, saying to himself, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. 
Now, the sweeping away of moist and dry is a reference to how God will destroy the very land that he gives them in his covenant promise. That though he promised them land that is flowing with milk and honey, meaning a fruitful land, which Israel is, he will make their land if they disobey him, if they worship false gods, if they do not love him, if they do this on repeat, if they do it continuously, which they eventually will. He will make their land desolate and destroy it, both the dry land and the watered land alike. So why would God do that? Well, the simple answer is because they became idolatrous. But what is it that make a people who have had the Lord lead them through the wilderness and bless them with clothes that don't wear out and sandals that don't wear out and miraculous water from a rock when they were thirsty and manna from heaven when they were hungry and victory over their enemies throughout the land and a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night lead them through the land under his protection and also bless them with his presence in their midst through the tabernacle which was essentially like a portable temple. Why would they abandon that God who has done all of that for them to worship false gods who have done nothing for them. Because of verse 19. They bless themselves in their heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. What does that mean? It means they are abusing God's grace. They are counting on God to keep his covenant with them without them fulfilling their faithfulness to the covenant. Which ultimately, their faithfulness to the covenant, though it does require obedience to the law, God's primary objective is that they love the Lord. And if you love the Lord, you will follow him. If my children love me, they will listen to me. If they don't love me, they will rebel against me. So I make it my objective as a parent to love my children well, to serve them well, to teach them well, to discipline them rightly. To give them what they need, to provide for them, to lead them, to care for them. To support them, to protect them. I do all those things so that they would experience love from a father that is good and that they would reciprocate that love with a love for me. Now, the difference is I don't expect them to worship me. I do that as a means to show them the love of God the Father so they would worship God the Father through my good example of being godly. That's hard to do. Every father knows it. It's not an easy task. It takes a lifetime to learn how to do it well. And by the time you figure out, your kids are already gone and it's too late. So that happens, right? But the reality is what we expect from our children is love. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Love enhances forgiveness. Love does all the right things. Love for each other makes all the other elements of the relationship work and function properly. So obedience is much easier when you love the one to whom you are, the one whom you are supposed to obey. And so God wants from Israel love so that in loving God, obedience wouldn't be demanded. It would be the natural productive fruit of their affections for God. But, the, but when Israel sins, God is saying... That they will abuse his grace. They'll abuse the covenant that he made with them. They're literally consciously thinking that they know they are being stubborn and they know they are sinning, but they count on God's grace in his covenant to keep them safe from harm and to uphold his covenant with them to secure their land and their promise. 
And that is not what God is telling. And then God is telling them the opposite thing here. He's saying, if you don't do this, I will judge you. And they're saying, well, if I don't do it, even though I'm being stubborn, even though I know I'm sinning, God will cover me. Oh, does that sound familiar to you? Is that not like the repeated mantra of the church today, like the evangelical perspective that grace is so good and so powerful and so great that if I sin, I'm covered by grace, which is true, but abused by believers. And this isn't new because it was abused by Israel in this text. And this is the same idea that Paul shares concerning the gospel in Romans 6, 1 and 15, and also in Galatians 5, 13, where he says, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Paul's a Jew. Paul writes this knowing exactly what the Israelites did. God freed Israel from Egyptian slavery, which is a picture of God freeing us from slavery to sin and and giving us freedom in Christ. And he sends them into the wilderness. And after God does this good thing for Israel, he frees them from Egyptian slavery. They turn to sin immediately. And they take advantage of the freedom that God has given them to sin. They take advantage of the freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And now we're told in Galatians 5.13 as new covenant believers to not use our freedom in Christ as an opportunity from the flesh or to not abuse God's grace. So Paul gets it right that we should not abuse God's grace by intentionally continuing in sin. But Israel does not get it right. They will sin against God and against his covenant with them. And God tells them that he will take from them their land and make it desolate. He will take them, not just make their land desolate. He will make them desolate. And we'll see how he does that. But first, Moses continues in Deuteronomy 29, verses 20 through 21. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him. Now that sounds unlike our God. We just think of God as forgiving, right? He's a forgiving God. He is. He's forgiving according to his will, not according to your will. You can't do whatever you want and just say, the Lord will forgive me. The Lord forgives according to the Lord's will. He forgives according to his ways. He forgives those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't forgive those who don't. And he's being very clear here that he has parameters for his covenant. He has stipulations within his covenant. And part of the covenant that Israel is supposed to fulfill is to love the Lord their God. And therefore, as a product of their faith in God and love in him, they will be obedient to his law. So the obedience to the law is the, is the manifestation of their love for him. Because God is far more concerned about their hearts than their actions. He makes that abundantly clear throughout scripture as well. And so when he says the Lord will not be willing to forgive him, what the Lord is saying, what Moses is saying, is that the Lord is not going to forgive those who reject the Lord. And we would say that even today in, in our gospel, with our gospel complete, with the reality of all that we know. And Israel didn't understand the gospel the way we do today. They didn't have all the pieces put together. At this point, it's still a mystery. Paul tells us in Ephesians 3 that mystery is now revealed. So we now know the fullness of the gospel. And we would say today that anybody who doesn't put their faith in Christ will not be forgiven. Because God is a stipulation for forgiveness and it is faith in Jesus Christ. And so... It's the same principle here. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, him who does not love the Lord, who does not have their faith in God or their faith in God's promise of a Messiah. He goes on, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man 
And the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven and the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. Now it seems as if God is saying that he will single out the individual who does this and he will bring calamity upon him. Now that's true, it is what he will do, but God is ultimately speaking to the people as a whole. Back in verse 18, we see that he says either man or woman or clan or tribe who does this, that, that's who's going to be judged. He's being very vague, very general. He's saying whether it's an individual, man or woman, whether it's just a particular clan or just a certain tribe or the entire nation of Israel's generation. Maybe it's an entire generation, which we will see that's exactly what it is. It's an entire generation. And it's going to happen about 800 years from this text. And this is vital part. This is vital to the whole story. That obedience in the Old Testament is just like ours today. Obedience in the Old Testament is a product of faith. Obedience does not cause faith. Obedience does not earn anything in God's sight. Because all of our acts of obedience are done within a sinful flesh. So we are offering to God through our act of obedience worthlessness, or as Paul says, rubbish, which essentially means dung, is what Paul says in Philippians 3. So that's what we have to offer God even when we act in obedience. It is a worthless offering to God. Only the offering of Jesus himself is a worthy offering. So our objective is faith in Christ, and when we put our faith in Christ, we receive from Christ what is imputed into us is the righteousness of Jesus, and, and he takes from us our sinfulness. So he pays for our sin and gives to us a gift called righteousness, which we receive through a gift he also gives us called faith. And with the gift of faith, we believe and are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And the product of that faith is a new will, a new person, we are totally regenerated. Everything about us has changed. The old us has been put away. It has been put to death. He has been buried in the grave and he is dead. And the new us is in Christ, is a obedient, righteous, positionally we are obedient and righteous and perfected in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. But in this life, we still carry around this sinful flesh. And so our efforts are not just, well, now I'm going to prove to God that I obey, that I love him by obeying him. And though there is a truth in that, ultimately what God is after in you is a devotion and desire and love for him. And in that love for him, which can only come through the gift of faith that he's given you, we will naturally, by the power of the spirit, organically, and I, should, I said naturally, I should say supernaturally, desire to obey him and actually be capable of obeying him. And when we do that, those acts of obedience will honor God because those acts of obedience are not yours. They are Christ's that he is manifesting through you because you do not have righteousness on your own. The only righteousness you have was given to you at the purchase of your soul, at the, death of the, at the death of Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection. He has given to us his perfect righteousness. And so when we act in obedience, it is a product of our love for God that Christ acts through us, that the Holy Spirit manifests through us. And we, it is that way so that Ephesians 2, 9 and 10 would be true, so that no one would boast. So we couldn't say, I'm good. Look what I've done for the Lord. 
But that every time we act in obedience, every time we obey God, every time we do anything righteous or anything good, we would say all praise and all glory and all honor and all worship belongs to God alone who has produced this righteousness in me through the power of Jesus Christ who has purchased and lived out this righteousness in my place that I do not deserve. But he died on the cross to pay for my sins and to give me this righteousness that he would manifest through me so that he would be magnified in glory through my act of righteousness of which I'm simply an instrument so I could enjoy his glory for eternity. That kind of mentality diffuses all legalism. All acts of obedience as a means to earn any kind of favor or salvation in God. And that is vitally important to our salvation. Now, Moses goes on in verses 22 through 23. And he says, and the next generation, your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say, when they see the afflictions of the land and the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing where no plant can sprout and an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say. Now, before I tell you what the nations will say, let's address what we just read. God describes such an intense judgment on generation of Israel who rebel against his covenant that their abhorrent idolatry, uh, by their abhorrent idolatry, revealing their lack of faith. That those who come to the land, either the next generation of children under them or the foreigners who come through, will say that whatever they did must have been really bad in order for God to destroy them and their, and their land like this. God even compares it to how he judged Sodom and Gomorrah, a wicked place that was filled with not God's people, but with those who don't know God. So how much more should God's people avoid such sinfulness? And if they don't, how much more valid is God judging them since unlike the unbelieving nations... God's people know the truth. He's given them his law. He's told them what he expects from them, primarily to love him. And they are held accountable to that truth. And we know this because they will say in their heart that they know they are being stubborn. And yet they do it anyways and abuse his grace, thinking God will keep them safe. But he says, I will not. And he is warning them right now that they must be careful to abide by his law and to love him. So what do the nations say when they see God's judgment on his people and on their land? Verses 24 through 28. And all the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? Now, store that thought in your head right there. Why has the Lord done thus to this land? We're going to come back to that. Actually, we're not going to come back to it. We're going to see it again. So all the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of his great anger? The people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. That is what everyone will say when they see God's anger poured out in wrath against his people when they abandon him to worship false gods, proving they do not believe in him, that there is no faith and no love. So at this point in Israel's history, we could say that they have been properly warned. And now that point, that point is really important to understand they've been properly warned. 
that we know they've been warned and, and having been warned, they now know that uh, what God expects of them. And we have many other Old Testament texts that reveal that God is not asking for strict obedience to his law alone, but rather he's asking for them to believe him and love him, which will produce their obedience to his law and thus protect them from his wrath. And we have examples of this just, just not long after Moses here. In Joshua twenty three eleven, the Lord says, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. That is what he is after. Not obedience. He wants our hearts, and if he gets our hearts, he will make it obedient. And we know he'll make it obedient because he makes that new covenant promise in Ezekiel 36, 27, where he says, I will give you, 26, Ezekiel 36, 26, he says, I will give you a new heart. And then 27, he says, with that new heart, I will put my spirit in you and cause you to obey. Now, we're going to change texts here. So go to, with me to 1 Kings 9. God visited Solomon in 1 Kings 3, 5. That's the first time God visited Solomon. He asked Solomon, what do you want? Solomon says, I want wisdom. God says, excellent, ask. I'm going to give you all the wisdom in the world. Good interaction. Second interaction, a little, bit, little, little different tone. Now, it's vital to know that Solomon finished building the first temple for Israel in 1 Kings 7. So God's first temple, I mentioned the tabernacle earlier. The tabernacle was a place where they would set up this basically mobile temple where the presence of God would be housed within the inner tent and um, the holy of holies essentially and God's presence would be noticeable in a pillar of cloud of his glory and he would meet with Moses in the te- in the tabernacle would be in the midst of the people which is very unlike ancient Near East times where the foreign worshipers of false gods would always say their gods live up in the mountains which is silly when you think of the real God because God made those mountains and to the people, like, ooh, mountaintops, how special and grand. And God's like, mountains are nothing to me. They're like seeds. I could just flick them off the table if I wanted to. And yet the false gods and the people who worship those false gods are like, oh, up in the mountains is where our gods dwell because they're so much greater than us. And God says, yeah, well, I am greater than everything. I made everything. And I'm going to make my presence not on a mountaintop, but in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is going to be in the midst of the camp of Israel. So I am going to be inside of my people. I'm going to make my place in the midst of my people so that my people are surrounded by me and I and they are surrounding me so that my presence and my glory would be in the midst of them. That's God recognizing his great transcendence beyond us and yet his his grace to be within our presence. And so that's what the tabernacle was. And all this time, this tabernacle was a representation of what would soon be the temple. And the temple was a representation of what will be something else, which we'll get to in a second. But Israel now, or I mean Solomon now, finally builds the temple in Jerusalem. The first temple where God will house his glory in, verse, in uh, 1 Kings 7. In chapter 8, they bring the ark into the temple. They bless the temple. They pray. They do all these rituals and things for the temple. And then in 1 Kings 9, God visits Solomon a second time. And in 1 Kings 9, 1 through 5, God tells Solomon how he will bless Solomon and the throne of David forever if 
Solomon follows the Lord. He promises blessings to his people forever if they obey his law, if they do not turn away from him for idols. Same, same thing he told Moses. And again, obedience is not the aim. Loving the Lord is the aim. And love is a product of faith in the Lord, which produces obedience. But in verses 6 through 9, the Lord says this to Solomon. He goes from, hey, I've done all these great things for you. Don't forget me. And then in verse 9, he shifts to a warning, just like he did with Israel and Moab. And he says, but if you turn aside from following me, you and your children. So you and your children, meaning this includes future generations. And do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I gave, that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. That house he's talking about, that's the temple that Solomon just built. Solomon just finished the temple and God's like, hey, let's talk. You know that great building you just built for me? I will destroy it if you don't obey me. Like, can you imagine if your kids made a sandcastle? Like, Dad, look at my sandcastle. And I go, if you don't obey me, I'm going to kick that sandcastle over. <laughs> We'd be like, oh, okay. All right, sorry. Now, that's not a fair analogy, but it's, you know, similar concept. And, and what God is saying is, great house, that's awesome. I'm glad you made it for me. I wanted you to make it for me. I commanded you to make it for me. And it's glorious, exactly what I want, exactly to my specifications for the housing of my glory. But if you do not worship me, I will destroy the temple. Not to be like a dad kicking over his son's sandcastle, but because the temple houses my glory. And if you don't follow me and obey me, then you don't get the presence of my glory. So I will destroy the temple. And remove my presence and remove my glory. And see how you like life without your God. And he goes on and says, And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, now again, before I say what the people are going to say, let's take a break. We find God handing out a warning of judgment as people do not obey him and they turn to false gods. And again, we find God saying that everyone that sees the judgment of God will, the judgment that God will bring to his people, they will say something. Back in Deuteronomy 29, the nations say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? And what do the people who see God's judgment on Israel say in 1 Kings 9, 8? Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? It's the exact same warning, the exact same words he told Moses to tell the people. He's now repeating to Solomon, except now God has added not just the land, but now he's added the house to the destruction because the temple, Solomon just built the temple and because of everything I just explained. And so the people go on and, and, and to say that what they think about God's judgment in 1 Kings 9.9. 9, and it is exactly the same concept that, that God says the people will say back in Deuteronomy 29. So Deuteronomy 29 and 1 Kings 9 have a very similar structure. God's saying, hey, follow me. I've loved you. I've done so much good for you. If you don't, I'm going to destroy you. And the people who see the destruction are going to say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And then the people will also say these things. Verse 9, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. So at this point, 
in Israel's history, we could say that they have surely been properly warned to remain faithful to God, to obey his law and his commandments, to worship him alone, to follow his word as a product of their devout love for him, a love that ought to be easy to have since God has done nothing but good for them. And this warning of wrath against Israel does, does eventually come to fruition. So, everything we've read so far, Deuteronomy 29, 1 Kings 9, and now there are many other texts where we see similar warnings and maybe not exactly the same, maybe not warnings that are so specifically identical almost, but variety of warnings from God to his people about their need to love him and to follow him and to not worship false gods and, and to avoid idolatry and to remain faithful to him and so on and so forth. And so those, uh, like Habakkuk 1 is another place where God talks about... Um, the necessity for Israel to love him and to worship him and not to go after false gods. And so with all these warnings, eventually Israel does the very thing God says he knows they're going to do. And he, they abandon him. 400 years later, 400 years after Solomon, after 1 Kings 9, Israel will completely abandon God. And worship false idols. And the promise that God prophesied in Deuteronomy 29 and 1 Kings 9 and Habakkuk 1 and so many other places will be fulfilled when God sends Babylon to destroy the city of Jerusalem, to make their land desolate, to destroy the temple that Solomon just built, which is exactly what God promised would happen, and to take the people captive as judgment for their idolatry and their adultery to their covenant with God. So God had warned them, and they did not listen. And he'd warned them multiple times, and they did not listen. And God followed through with his promise to utterly wreck them in the exact manner he told them he would. So let me just give you a timeline so you can picture this uh, maybe in a linear way uh, so this kind of makes sense to you. Moses spoke to the people in Moab, so Deuteronomy 29, around 1300 B.C., Solomon built the temple just after 1000 BC. So it was about a 300-year difference between Moses and Moab and Solomon finishing the temple and God speaking to him in 1 Kings 9. And then Babylon destroyed and captured Jerusalem in 586 BC. So about 400 years after the temple, the temple gets destroyed. So they're warned in 1300, they're warned again in 1000, and then they were destroyed in 586. Now, when Judah was taken captive by Babylon, many of the people were actually taken from their land and taken to Babylon. And Babylon, though, not long after this, is destroyed by the, or conquered, really, by the Persian Empire. And later we see in Ezra and Nehemiah that the Jews are finally allowed to go back and rebuild Jerusalem that had been destroyed by Babylon because the Persian king says, fine, go ahead, I'm going to write a decree and you guys can go out and you can go back to your land and you can fix your walls and fix your temple and fix your city. And so they go back and they rebuild Jerusalem. Here's the issue. Many, many Jews returned home, but many did not. And the Jews that did not return dispersed all over the known world. They were free to go, but they kind of just landed all over the place. And this is what we call the dispersion of the Jews, or, or 
the word would be the diaspora or the dispersion, which refers to the body of Jews who are sprinkled all over the known world due to the Babylonian captivity. This is the Jewish audience, the, the dispersion, the, the Jews who are scattered everywhere, is the audience that James writes his letter to in the New Testament, as he says in James 1.1, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. James was one of the earliest written New Testament letters. It was written about 10 to 15, about 44 to 49 AD, about 10 or 15 years after Jesus' ascension. And I mention all of this about the dispersion because we tend to separate the Old Testament from the New Testament. We think, well, that's old, old, old. And New Testament, that's new. I mean, it's old to us, 2,000 years ago, but that's way newer, totally different time period. But as you can see, the warnings that God gave Israel in 1300 and then again in 1000 and then fulfilled in 586 has long-lasting effects. The Jews were forever changed because they did not heed God's word and God's warning. Their idolatry completely changed their identity for centuries. So much so that it impacts the New Testament church. It impacts who New Testament authors are writing their letters to and where they're sending their letters. It impacts the, you read the book of Acts and you see that this journey of the apostles dealing with Israel and the Jews and the Gentiles and who they interact with in different cities. Paul will go all the way over to Macedonia and there's Jews there. Who are, who are Hellenistic Jews, completely in, uh, impacted by the Greek culture that they live in, yet they're Jews. And then they struggle with their Judaism and the, their culture that they live in. And so the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon, which would be 600 years before the New Testament church, is completely impacted by that Babylonian siege on Jerusalem. Which is a product of them not heeding God's warnings back in 1300 in Moses' time and in Solomon's time and throughout all of history for the Jews. So instead of looking at that and thinking, you know, shame on the Israelites for their idolatry and how that affect them. Shame on them. They should have known better. We must consider that this was God's sovereign plan. Because the dispersion created a situation that primed the world for the arrival of its Savior, Jesus. And the rebuilding of the second temple in the book of Ezra, which was completed within a hundred years from the Babylonians, uh, from Babylon destroying the first temple. So Babylon destroys the first temple in 586. And then within a hundred years, Israel's rebuilt the second temple through, we see that in the book of Ezra. And that sets the stage, that second temple sets the stage for the arrival of Jesus in the first century AD. And that's important because then we get the final destruction of that very second temple that Ezra built. It gets destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, just about 30 some years after Jesus ascends to heaven. That temple is destroyed and that temple being destroyed has significant theological impact because once Jesus establishes the church, we become the new temple. The housing of, for the presence of the Lord and for his glory now rests in Christ and Christ is in us. We're the new temple. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians we are the new temple, and a second, we are the new temple, 
And that the glory of God now dwells within his people, no longer in a building. So the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD has significant theological impact because now there's no place on earth for the physical manifestation of the glory of God to dwell in a place like he did in the Old Testament because the veil has been torn, the sun has been killed, he has been buried, he has resurrected, and now he has returned and he has ascended to heaven and he will come back one day. So now we live in a new time a new era where things are new and different. The fullness of the mystery of the gospel that has been proclaimed since Genesis chapter 3 has now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the church is now the building of God on earth. We are now the walking glory of God. So what is glory? Glory is the manifestation of holiness. Meaning anytime you do anything holy or good, you are revealing God's holiness and goodness through you because only God is good and only God God is holy. Only Christ is righteous. Only Christ is holy. So any goodness or holiness or righteousness that you perform or do is the righteousness of Jesus Christ working through you. So when you do good, when you do holiness, when you do righteousness, you are revealing the holiness of God, which we call glory. So the word glory really means to magnify the holiness of God, the goodness of God, the righteousness of God. That's why we say glorify God. That's why we're commanded to glorify God. It means do holiness that God has purchased for you and put into you. Do that holiness and you will reveal the glorious nature of God's holiness. That's what we are. That's what the temple was supposed to be. And that's what we now are. So we are mobile temples. God went from mobile temple and the tabernacle to solidified temple in Jerusalem to destroying both temples and putting his temple Making us his temple by putting himself and his glory and his son. The very, very God himself dwells within us at all times. Secured in the Holy Spirit for us for eternity. That's Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. That we are now a mobile temple again. We went from mobile to solid back to mobile. And not just one mobile temple, but millions of mobile temples revealing and sharing and spreading the glory of God through Jesus Christ to a world that does not know him. So to bring to him the glory that he deserves so that God would get the very thing he knows he deserves, which is the worship of people. All of that required that Israel disobey God and he judged them. Just as he warned them, just as they disobeyed. So he sends Babylon, Babylon a nation that he determined and raised up to be evil on purpose for this reason. He made, he says this in Habakkuk 1, he made Babylon evil so they would destroy Israel. Such a crazy thought that even Habakkuk the prophet says to God, Uh, what? You can't do that. And God's like, I can do whatever I want. And the righteous will believe me when I say it. Because he says to Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. Trust me, Habakkuk, is what he's saying. So he raises up Babylon to destroy Israel so that it would set the stage for a variety of different circumstances and situations that lead to the coming of Christ, which lead to the destruction of the temple, which leads to us being the temple of God on earth for the rest of this reality until we go home. So we are not disconnected from the Old Testament. We are the conclusion. The church 
is the conclusion. We are grafted into this thing called Israel. You see that in Romans chapters 10 and 11. We are grafted into this thing called Israel. We become a part of God's people. We are now God's people. We are Gentiles, not Jews, but we are saved and we become the mobile temple of God for the world. The church is the conclusion of everything you read in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not going to speak to Israel's future because that is an entirely different conversation, okay? But there is a future for Israel, I do believe. If you read Romans uh, 11, it's hard to avoid the fact that Israel has a future. There's debate over what that future is, but they do have a future. So, question, what does that have to do with us? Other than what I just explained theologically, what does it practically and pragmatically mean to us? God warned Israel. Just like he warns us. He doesn't warn Israel and go, don't, 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 don't. Oh, darn it, you did. Now I'm going to crush you and I'm going to do it on purpose so that I can bring in my gospel and, you know, bring Jesus and do all these things that I just explained. Um, He warns them so that they would not sin. But he doesn't change. God doesn't change. His word says he doesn't change. I think it's is it Malachi 3. I think he says, he does, the, I, the Lord, do not change. And so even when we get into the new covenant in Christ, he still warns us. The book of Hebrews has five particular warnings where God warns us. And one of them we find in Hebrews 10, 26. And he says this. Now, this is going to sound, I'm going to read this. This is going to sound super scary, okay? But I want, you to, I want you to be scared. I want you to feel the fear that comes out of these words. He's talking to new covenant believers who cannot lose their salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. Our salvation is secured, John 6, John 10, first, uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Salvation is secured in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. He seals us for eternity. But... Knowing that, that you can't lose your salvation, I want you to hear the terror of this, of this text, Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So what does remain then? A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's a warning to us. But you know what? This is important. I need you to hear this. This is not us. This is a warning to us, but this does not describe us. This is for, the last word in verse 26, or actually, this is the middle of 27, I think. Um, This last word I read, adversaries. We are not his adversaries. We are his friends. We are his children. We are his beloved ones. Psalm 103.10 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Hebrews 10 is a warning to believers. It's not telling us that that is who we are. It's a warning. And it seems like it is saying that you can lose your salvation or that obedience better happen. It's vital to your salvation, which it isn't. Only Christ's obedience is vital to our salvation. Obedience is not a means to salvation. Obedience is the product of salvation. And obedience is evidence of salvation, which is why Jesus says, prove to be my disciples. Meaning, show me the evidence that you are saved by loving me and the product will be obedience. It's the exact same message God has been preaching to Israel and now to the church. 
And that is why Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He is not saying, If you keep my commandments, then I will love you. That is legalism. It's a false gospel and it's heresy. He is saying, Those who love me, they know me. And they hear my words and they follow me and they obey me. Why do they do this? Same reason Israel would do this, because they love him. He also isn't saying that, the follow, that his followers will be perfect in their obedience, because we will not. The warning in Hebrews 10 serves as a signal to our hearts and minds when sin consumes us to remember that we are not God's adversaries, but his children. And it's a reminder to think of 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 that says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10 warns us when we sin, not so that we would be better, so that we would behave better, or so that we would be terrified, and so that we would think, oh, I just lost my salvation, or anytime I sin, I'm in trouble, and God's going to pour his fury and anger and wrath on me because I guess I was never saved because I sinned. That is not what Hebrews 10 is about. Hebrews 10 is a signal, a bell, a warning, an alarm. Hey, you're sinning. You know what sinners do? Those who continue to to intentionally and deliberately choose to sin, that is not the identity of the believer. Those who do that receive the wrath and fury of God because they're his adversaries. You are not his adversary. Don't go down this path. It is conviction of the Spirit. That's what Hebrews 10.26 is for the believer. It is meant to produce conviction from the Spirit that warns us you are going down a path that destiny for wrath that is not allotted for you. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to convict your heart and change you and turn you away from sin. That is the warning purpose. That is the alarm that goes off from Hebrews 10.26 when we sin. It draws us back to 1 Thessalonians 5. I'm not destined for wrath which means I'm not destined for sin. It's time to repent and follow the Lord. I wanted you to see how God dealt with Israel so that you could see how God has orchestrated the coming of Christ, that though God judged Israel for their sin, it was their lack of faith and trust and love for God that caused their wickedness. They didn't love God, and because they didn't love God, they didn't follow God. They didn't obey God, so they ran after false idols, and they worshiped false gods, and they worshiped with false worshipers, and God judged them for it, even though he warned them over and over and over and over and over again. And even after he judges Israel, and they are taken away to Babylon, in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, he says, hey, I know the plans I have for you. They're plans for good. Not for harm, but for good. I know what I'm doing. I know you've been taken captive. It's going to be 70 years in the land of Babylon until you are released. And when you are, trust me, I've got plans for you. And they're going, oh, great, we're going to get our land back. And God's going to love us again. And we're going to be better. And he's like, no, no, that's not the plan I'm talking about. I got a better plan. I'm going to send you my son, a Messiah, to fix all of this. Israel, you have tried to follow me in obedience. You have tried to love me obediently, and you can't. I've given you a law that gives you parameters and structure and orientation about how do I love the Lord? How do I worship God? How do I 
fix my life in a way that allows me to do the things that God tells me to do. And I gave you my law to set those rules and parameters by which you can live so that you can do the things I'm telling you to do, ultimately, which is to love me. But what God reveals through Israel is that Israel, without the power of the Holy Spirit and by humanity alone, which is purely and totally and completely totally depraved of anything good, will rebel against God, and Israel proved it over and over and over again. And that is why the promise of the coming Messiah is so glorious to the church, and why Israel couldn't see it. Because they can't comprehend what we can. They couldn't do what we can do. In fact, without the Holy Spirit, we would be just like them, disobedient idolaters. And so when God sends Israel away to Babylon and judges them for their sin that he warned them against thousands of times. And he tells them this promise in Jeremiah 29, 11, I'm, I've got a plan for you. That plan is not, I'll give you your land back and let you try again. That's not God's will. God's plan is, I've got something better in store for you. My son who will come and my son who will live the perfect life. This very life I've been telling you Jews to live for thousands of years and you haven't done. I'm going to send my son. He's going to be God. He is God and he will also be man. And in his humanity, by the power of my spirit, he will live out the life I've asked you to live. And he will do it perfectly because you cannot. And then he will die on a cross as a sacrifice for your sins. The cross that you deserve to die on. And, and he's going to die in your place. He's going to take the cross for you. He will take the judgment and my wrath and all of my vengeance for sin himself. But it will be a worthy sacrifice because he will have lived the life I've commanded you to live that you couldn't live. And when he does that and he dies in that cross and he's buried in that grave and he resurrects from the grave. And the resurrection is God's confirmation that the son was a worthy sacrifice that validated life and freedom for all God's people for all eternity. When that happens... He will deliver to us His Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that dwells within us. And now, something new has arrived. The church, and the church is filled with the power and glory of God and the Holy Spirit. And now, finally, after thousands of years of Israel getting it wrong and screwing up and never being able to do it right, God has put Himself in the church and we finally get to worship God with real, genuine, eternal, secure, perfect, righteous love. That is the gospel. It's the gospel that God has been preaching since day one. It's the gospel that he reveals to Israel over a course of their terrible history. And only a few times with a few men does God lace his spirit into certain men like David and Daniel. To reveal just a glimpse of what the Savior will do for the world and for his kingdom. We are not the Israelites. We will not be judged. We have been warned like Israel's warned, but we are not like them. We have the Holy Spirit. Obedience is not the aim. Christ is. And with joy and satisfaction in God through Christ, we can pursue Jesus. We can love God through Christ. And your love as a product of your faith in him that he gave to you according to his sovereign election is now going to produce in us what we call obedience. And that obedience means nothing to God other than it reveals the righteousness of Christ in you. You're not earning anything. Every time you obey 
You are showing God the holiness of Jesus that he purchased for you. Every time you obey, you are earning nothing. Every time you obey, you are saying to God, I declare in this moment, through this act of obedience, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ on my life. That's my declaration. That's my proclamation. I will obey you, Lord, not because I'm good, but because Christ is good. And I want to declare, I want to project, I want to magnify your glory through Jesus Christ by being holy in this moment. To magnify your gospel and your grace and your goodness and your mercy. Not my obedience, because I don't have any. I want to magnify Jesus. If we think about the gospel like that, it will completely change the way we feel when we sin. When you sin, you know how you feel? Guilty, terrible, condemned. And God's like, why? 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 That's not what I saved you for. I didn't save you to feel bad. I saved you to feel free. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But instead, use your freedom in Christ to express the glorious beauty of the gospel in obedience as a way to magnify my glory. You want to worship me? Obey me. Let's pray. We love you, Lord. We thank you so much for your word, for your gospel, for your, for your history, for everything you've done. And there's so much we didn't cover today. And just to think that there is an infinite amount of work and knowledge that you have that isn't revealed to us. And that we get to spend eternity in your presence seeing you reveal glimpses and pieces of that infinite greatness and glory throughout the rest of eternity. What a, what a glorious hope we have to look forward to. Help us to obey you, not for the sake of obedience, not to earn your favor, but as a result and declaration and proclamation of what Christ has done for us so that we would magnify your glorious gospel through our obedience. Help us to declare your gospel in loving you well. It's hard to do, but you've also not only given us your spirit, but you've given us each other. So let us cling to one another as we cling to the cross. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.